Well, after that time of worship and that prayer, I almost feel like I don't have to preach. (laughs) It is a privilege to worship with you. I'm very thankful for it. One of the trademarks of early comic books, uh, if you are a comic book aficionado, uh, one of the things that you may have noticed in the early years was that superheroes had a tendency, right before they dove into some situation to save the day, they would stop for a moment and proclaim some sort of catchphrase. Uh, Superman, for example, when he was disguised as mild-mannered Clark Kent, uh, if he was out and about and he spotted some nefarious villain in the midst of carrying out a crime, before he dove into uh, a telephone booth to swap out his business suit for his cape and his tights, he would, he would pause for a moment and he would say, this looks like a job for Superman, and then uh, go take care of the problem. Uh, this is a, a practice in comic books that has mostly faded, thankfully. Uh, but there are a few superheroes who still have pretty famous taglines. Uh, one of the more famous ones is Dr. Bruce Banner. Uh, you may know him. You may be more familiar with him uh, because of a, a TV show in the 80s. Uh, he, Dr. Bruce Banner is more famously known as the Incredible Hulk. Dr. Banner's famous line is, Please don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. The reason behind his plea is that his anger quite literally transforms him into a monster. As a result of a scientific experiment gone wrong, Dr. Banner transforms into a giant, green-skinned, purple-pantsed, incredibly strong beast. When he gets agitated, I thought about wearing a green shirt and purple pants this morning, but I I don't have any purple pants, unfortunately. The shy, reserved, brilliant physicist becomes an unstoppable juggernaut driven by sheer rage. The term hero is, is loosely applied to the Hulk. It's mostly because he is incredibly efficient at stopping bad guys. But the manner in which he does so is enough to make most people cringe. And like his alter ego, Dr. Banner, the Hulk also has a famous catchphrase. But I think it's appropriate that he never pauses to say it. He says it in the midst of doing wreaking destruction. His catchphrase is, Hulk smash! (laughs) He's pure rage. He's thoughtless. He's violent. He's bent on total destruction. And even Dr. Banner sees the Hulk as an affliction that he's, he's tried in vain for decades to cure. And I suspect that when when most people think about anger, they settle on a concept that is pretty well embodied by the Incredible Hulk. On the whole, I think anger is seen as a primarily negative thing. Anger is a a violent emotion. It's forceful. It's combative. It can be dangerous. 
And I also suspect that anger has predominantly negative connotations because we often see people who are mastered by their anger. And that's, that's an ugly and frightening thing. Some of us may even feel that we can relate to Dr. Bannon. You wouldn't like us when we're angry. This morning, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that warns us against the dangers of an anger that burns out of control, of an anger that masters us. It recognizes the potential for anger to lead to senseless destruction, division, and pain. And therefore, it cautions us to handle it with care. But if I can go back to my introductory metaphor, buried within the fury of the Hulk, there is a bit of Dr. Banner that is praiseworthy and good. A desire and a willingness to pursue justice in the face of evil. Foundational to this passage is an understanding that anger is an emotion that is given to us by God. And his intention for anger is that it is it's to be used to confront and correct sin. So turn with me, if you have your Bibles this morning, to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking specifically at Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27. And, and those two verses are found uh, in the midst of an argument that Paul is making, where he's explaining that one of the implications of the gospel is that the people who believe the gospel should then be transformed by it. There are old ways of life that we should take off, the, the old self, and new ways of life that we should put on. With the goal being that we will look more and more like Christ as we do so. One of the areas where the gospel facilitates change, gives us power to change in our lives, is in our re- relation to anger. So follow along as I read Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 32. Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, And to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. 
As Paul writes this passage of scripture, ex- explaining what it looks like to put on the new self, from verses 25 to 30, you probably notice that he, he follows a bit of a structural pattern. Uh, he tells Christians what attitudes and behaviors they are to avoid, tells them what attitudes or behaviors should take their place, and he gives a rationale for his commands. For example, he says, put off falsehood and speak truthfully. Steal no longer, but work. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. He's, he's got a pattern there. At, at first glance, it seems like Paul maybe skipped his pattern when he came to verse 26 and he started talking about anger. Uh, the NIV translation reads like three prohibitions with no replacement behavior given. Uh, however, Paul actually hasn't broken his pattern here, but he has reversed it. His prohibition, the, the behavior that he wants Christians to avoid, uh, to take off, is do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And his rationale for that command is do not give the devil a foothold. His replacement behavior, the attitude that he wants Christians to put on, Uh, as they are transformed by the gospel, is actually his first statement about anger. In your anger, do not sin. Uh, That's how the the NIV renders it. The the translation, I think, captures the meaning, but unintentionally, I think it it sort of masks Paul's intention. Literally translated, that phrase is, be angry and do not sin. Paul's desire for the church when it comes to anger is that they not be mastered by it, but instead that they express it in ways that are consistent with the character of God. This morning, we're going to move through these verses by highlighting the anger that uh, believers should exhibit and then look at two ways to avoid being mastered by your anger. I don't have a little handout for you, but uh, that's that's going to be my outline. Uh, We're going to look at what the anger that Christians should exhibit look like and then two ways to avoid being mastered by your anger. Be angry and do not sin. What does that look like? From the first mention of anger in this passage, it's clear that the correct expression of anger is not no expression of anger. Right? Christians are not called to a life devoid of anger or, or of suppressed anger. The bottom line is that anger, like all of our emotions, is created by God. And when it's expressed correctly, it's righteous and God-honoring. God has wired us to experience anger like he does. Uh, There was an article published in Science Daily in May of 2010 uh, that explained a study done on the physical changes that take place in a person who becomes angry. Uh, And an interesting observation was made by the, the scientists doing this study. Uh, they noted that when an individual gets angry, they, they undergo certain physical changes. Their, their heart rate increases, uh, arterial pressure increases, and their testosterone production increases. At the same time, uh, cortisol, which is the, the stress hormone, decreases. But what interested researchers in the study was that the left hemisphere of your brain actually undergoes more stimulation when you're angry than the right hemisphere. And the reason why this surprised researchers is uh, the left hemisphere of the brain is typically associated with positive emotional responses, like happiness. 
And the, the frontal portion of the left hemisphere of your brain is associated with closeness. So, for example, when I first met my wife, the left frontal portion of my brain threw down a red alert and notified my feet that they should begin moving in her general direction as quickly and efficiently as possible. All right? There was, that part of your brain tries to get you to engage the stimuli, to get, draw close to it. Uh, conversely, the right hemisphere of the brain is associated with negative emotional responses at, like fear or sadness, and that in, induces chemical changes that try and get you to withdraw from the stimuli. So when you're, when you're afraid or when you're sad, you try and get away from what caused those things. Anger, it was noticed in the study, stimulated both hemispheres. But it was observed that the people who were stimulated to anger could hear better out of their right ear, which meant that the left hemisphere of their brain was being stimulated more than the right. Uh, Neus Herrero, who was the lead author on the study, interpreted the observation this way. The case of anger is unique because it is experienced as a negative, but often it evokes a motivation of closeness. Normally, when we get angry, we show a natural tendency to get closer to what made us angry to try to eliminate it. At its core, anger combines a recognition that something about the situation that you just experienced is wrong. It it might have caused pain. It It was cruel. It was unjust. It's not the way that things are supposed to work. It combines that recognition with the desire that it be confronted. And that emotion kicks off a host of physical changes in your body that are meant to enable you to do just that. But even though God has wired us to become angry, he also calls us to express our anger without sin. And the key to being angry and not sinning is to get angry at the right things in the right way for the right reasons. And in order to do that, we first need to understand what the purpose of anger is. Why why do we get angry? What's it for? Why did God give it to us? Scripture does not explicitly give us a purpose statement for anger. If you go looking through your Bible, you're not going to find anger exists to serve the body of Christ by blank, 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 for the purpose of blank, 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 to the glory of God. What it does give us, however is accounts of how God has expressed his anger. And, and nobody in all of history has expressed anger in a more God-honoring fashion than God himself. Our provocation to anger can come from a myriad of sources, right? I've been angered from everything, from, from the way somebody says my name. Please don't ever call me Stevie. <laughs> to, the, to the way that people drive. I've been angered by the insignificant and the substantial. And I have no doubt that that most, if not all of you, can relate to that. But what we see when we look at how God expresses his anger is that his anger is, is caused by specific things, triggered by specific things, and he acts in purposeful and directed means to correct the problem. God's anger is always directed at sin. And he always uses his anger to confront the sin and correct the problem. Here are some examples from Scripture of what God is angered by and how he responds. 
In Exodus 22:22 to 24, God responds to oppression with anger. He says, do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. In Numbers 25, 3 and 4, God responds to idolatry with anger. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. In Deuteronomy 4, 25 and 26, God responds to corruption with anger. After you have had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and provoking him to anger, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. In 1 Kings 14, 7 through 10, God responds to wicked leaders with anger. Go tell Jeroboam that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I raised you up from among the people and made you a leader over my people Israel. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and I gave it to you. But you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You have provoked me to anger and thrust me behind your back. Because of this, I'm going to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as one burns dung until it is all gone. In Mark 3, 1 through 5, God responds to hard hearts with anger. Another time he, he being Jesus, went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger And deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. In Mark 11, 15 to 17, God responds to exploitation with anger. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. God's anger is always in response to sin and it is always directed at correcting the problem. And it seems to me, as I look through those accounts, the things that provoke God to anger the most in Scripture are what Jesus called in Matthew 22, the greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
He sees oppression, idolatry, injustice, and cruelty. And he acts in anger to avenge, protect, and correct his people. He acts to bring about justice. I think you see that most clearly in that, that first instance in, um, in Exodus 22, where if you uh, oppress a widow or an orphan, I'll make your wife a widow and your children orphans. He acts to bring about justice. That gives us an idea of, of what the purpose of anger is. To recognize when something is wrong and to motivate us to make it right. That being said, even though anger is something that is not inherently sinful and was created by God to be expressed in ways that honor him, it still deserves a fair amount of caution. So Paul gives us two commands that are are aimed at preventing us from being mastered by our anger. Paul gives two commands uh, to avoid being mastered by our anger. The first command is this. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And to begin with, I believe there are two ways that this command is often misinterpreted and misapplied. Paul is not telling us that we must cease to be angry before the sun goes down. A person who becomes angry at 6.53 p.m. on a day when the sun sets at 7.13 p.m. does not have 20 minutes to get their anger under control. Nor does a person who wakes up and gets angry at 7.13 a.m. on the same day have 12 hours to get their anger under control. It's, it's not a, a specific deadline that Paul is setting there. Paul is also not telling us that we must settle all of our disputes before the day is over and we go to bed. He's not talking about disputes or arguments between two or more individuals. He's talking about anger within one individual. What I believe Paul is referencing here is God's command in Deuteronomy 24:15 that a worker be paid his wages for his day's work before the sun goes down. Anything beyond that was considered waiting an unreasonable amount of time. I don't believe Paul's intent is to establish for us a literal deadline of sunset for us to get our anger under control. What I believe he's commanding is that Christians should not allow their anger to continue beyond a reasonable period of time. Just as there was a reasonable time period for business arrangements to come to a close, there should be a reasonable time for Christians to bring their anger to a close. Paul is warning the church that anger in God's people should be restrained. That's the idea behind this command. We should not be characterized by anger. It should not be a dominant trait in us. It shouldn't be a consistent state of being. Unrestrained anger is an indication that anger has mastery over you. And specifically, I think this command speaks to the frequency and the duration of our anger. There, there should be limits on both. And again, I think the best example of this is, is God himself. One of the most commonly quoted descriptions of God first appears in Exodus 34, verse 6. And it contains a reference to God in relation to his anger. Uh, In that particular chapter of Exodus, uh, Moses has asked God to show him his glory. And God agrees. And so he he tells Moses to go up to Sinai and he puts him in a cleft of a rock and he tells him that he will pass by him and proclaim his name. And and Moses will see his back 
and hear God say his name. So God does this. He, he hides Moses in, in a cleft on Mount Sinai. He passes by. And as he passes by, this is what he says. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. God is slow to anger. Anger is not his default disposition towards humanity, nor is it one that he enters into hastily. His dominant characteristics are compassion and grace, love and faithfulness. The fact that God ever becomes angry demonstrates to us that sin deserves it. Sin demands anger. Sin in any manifestation is never okay. It should never be status quo. It should never be acceptable. It should always be met with resistance. And there are some sins, like those that God responded to in anger, such as oppression or cruelty or corruption, that demand our anger. However, the the principle that we need to see is that while God sets himself firmly against sin, his actions towards sinners are characterized by grace and compassion, by love and faithfulness. And the people who bear his name should have the same reputation. Not only is God slow to anger, but he acts with purpose and he restricts his anger to those purposes when he expresses it. In Jeremiah thirty twenty four, uh, it says the fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purposes of his heart. God limits the duration of his anger to his purposes. His purpose in anger is to bring about justice. And once he has achieved that, he brings his anger to an end. That's not the way that human anger typically works, is it? When I get angry, because, for example, let's say the dryer breaks down, my anger is not limited to the dryer. It affects how I interact with my wife and my kids. It may even spill over into my work. And even after I fix the dryer, there's no guarantee that my anger will come to an end. I'll probably still be pretty irritated. But anger expressed as God expresses it is a tool for justice. It's a blessing for those who are under the the oppression and, and the curse of sin. It's a testimony to his goodness. And it's a testimony to his hatred for sin. Unrestrained anger in his people is a sign that anger is no longer a tool being used for justice. It itself has become the master and we have become the tool. When I think about unrestrained anger, one of the first things that comes to my mind is Westboro Baptist Church. Most of you are probably familiar with them, but it just seems like they are always angry. It characterizes everything that they do. They'll protest anything. They have a reputation for anger. Paul would no doubt have something to say about their theology and their methodology. But the thing is, it's really easy for us to point the finger at the people that are being really loud when they're angry and say, you know, I don't look like that. 
so I'm probably okay. But where this hits home for me is in a, in a much more subtle and I think probably more dangerous habit. See, I, I tend to internalize my anger and let it just kind of seethe just below the surface. I'm like a cow with its cud. You know, I'll, I'll bring it up and chew on it for a little while and send it back down. And then bring it up, chew on it for a little while, send it back down over and over and over I tell myself that that's probably better because, you know, at least I'm not blowing up all the time, right? The problem is I'm still letting the sun go down on my anger. I'm not bringing it to an end. I'm just letting it simmer, right? It's lingering there just beneath the surface, just festering. And we all know what happens the longer you let pressure build up. Sooner or later, it all blows up. Paul's command to the church to not let their sun go down, not let the sun go down on your anger goes hand in hand with his next command, which serves as a rationale for his limitations on anger. Do not give the devil a foothold. Anger should be restrained because it can leave people vulnerable to the devil's evil purposes rather than God's good purposes. Paul's use of the term the devil uh, here for Satan is, is very appropriate, and I think it's probably very deliberate. The word devil literally means slanderer. And it highlights Satan's propensity for stirring up dissension and discord in God's creation. I think Paul probably has in mind here Satan's tendency to distort the truth. In the case of anger, the longer we allow ourselves to be angry, the more likely it becomes that our motives will be distorted and lead to sin. And the devil's tactics in manipulating our anger are very similar to the tactics that he used in the Garden of Eden. Uh, when, he, when he tempted Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. One of the first things he'll, he'll do is he'll subtly call into question the things that we know. Did God really say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? In our anger, it may go something like, do you really think that was an accident? Really? Really? And he also subtly encourages us to believe what we want to believe. In the garden, it was will not surely die. In our anger, it might be, you have every right to be upset. How could they do that? It couldn't have been an accident. They must have meant it. He distorts things. Anger that honors God is anger that seeks and is satisfied by justice. Anger that the devil tries to cultivate seeks vengeance, and it's fueled by malice. It's a particular delight to him, and it's particularly destructive, because anger that seeks vengeance is never truly satisfied. Consider this story, which appeared in the Chicago Tribune in 2001. It all started in 1998, when Michael Zwick of Glenview, Illinois, complained about his neighbor's new fence. It left a dark area behind the garage where gang members might hang out, he felt. 
In response to his complaint, the neighbor, Jean Kraft, told Zwick not to put his recycling bins on the public parkway in front of her house because they were killing the grass. In retaliation, Zwick blew leaves back onto her property, let his weeds grow 12 inches high, and aimed a fake security camera at her yard. Then she moved his recycling bins, complained to police about snow plowed onto her land, and bought new shades and drapery to cover her windows. The village of Glenview finally wrote an ordinance that prohibited Zwick from putting his recycling bins close to his neighbor's house. Zwick defies the ordinance and has been given 10 citations and charged $1,000 in fines. The case has now gone to Cook County Court. Says Zwick, we're digging in. (laughs) Anger that's motivated by vengeance will retaliate and escalate, retaliate and escalate, and it just gets caught in this cycle. It has no place in the body of Christ. And that's the anger that Paul tells us that we need to get rid of in verse 31. Anger fueled by malice. What are your motives when you get angry? Is your heart set on justice or is it set on vengeance? The answer to that question is one of the ways for you to determine whether or not your anger is righteous. Anger that the church should exhibit is anger that seeks justice. It's it's anger that is ultimately satisfied in the gospel. One of the things that angers me the most is when when people abuse and take advantage of children. Probably one of the most significant perpetrators of, of crimes involving children, at least in the past probably 50 years, is a man named Joseph Coney. He's he's, uh, the leader of the Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda. Much of his army is composed of children whom he has abducted and then forced to commit all manner of atrocities in order to desensitize and brainwash them. The children are abused and enslaved, and he claims to do all of that in the name of God. I long... I long for the day that Joseph Coney is brought to justice and he has to answer for his crimes. But the reality is, Joseph Coney may never face justice on this earth. He may never be brought to trial for his crimes. So the the question is, what then do I do with my anger? How is it satisfied? How can I bring it to an end? If Coney dies a free man, where is the justice? I go back to Jeremiah 30, 24. You see, that verse not only promises that God will bring an end to his anger when he accomplishes his purposes, it promises that he will accomplish his purposes. I go back to the description that God gives of himself in Exodus 34. If you continue reading that passage, it says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. 
along with Paul's choice of the term devil for Satan in his last command here, I also think his, his phraseology of that last command is deliberate. It, it, when he says, do not give the devil a foothold, literally translated, that is, you do not give place to the devil. That's the statement that he makes there. And it parallels a phrase that he uses in his letter to the Romans in chapter 12, verse 19, where he says, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. More literally, that last phrase is, you give place to God's wrath. You do not give place to the devil. You give place to God's wrath. Our anger in its purest and most righteous form is a mirror of God's anger. It, it, stand against, it stands against sin. It wants what is good. It seeks justice. But just as it is ultimately a mirror of God's anger, it also must ultimately give place to God's anger. Because only there will it find justice and be satisfied. As much as I hate child abuse, as much as I hunger for justice for those children, God hates it more. And he hungers for justice more than I do. And he alone has both the power and the means to bring it about. The gospel satisfies our anger by assuring us that there is ultimately justice. There is no sin that will ever go unpunished. From the first sin ever committed to the last one, from the greatest sin to the least, every sin will be punished either in hell or at the cross. The gospel promises us justice. But in the gospel, there is also assurance of God's grace and compassion. Of a God who is abounding in love and faithfulness. Because in the cross, in the death of Christ, sin is punished, but the sinner may go free. In his son Jesus, God offers us a substitute who will face his anger for our sin in our place. And that offer is there. Extended to all because God is ultimately seeking more than simply justice. He's seeking a people who bear his name and are repentant and transformed. He seeks a people who have not simply been punished for their sin, but who have been cleansed from their sin. People who are no longer his enemies, but his children. Let's pray. Father, you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. You are wise and you are just and you have been good to us. Father, by your Holy Spirit, help us pursue an anger that does not make us judge, jury and executioner, but rather an anger that exalts you as the just and gracious judge. Help us not be a people who are mastered by our anger, Father, but rather a people who are mastered by compassion and grace. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.